I mean, that's a hard... I just feel like movies are not meant to be seen every day. You know what does work? When you're nine years old, Aladdin... Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. That's right. And today we will be talking about Ty West's Pearl, the semi-prequel to the film X, which he released earlier this year. And for the streaming homework, we will be reviewing the anime Perfect Blue. I never know how to... Is there a distinction between anime as a series or anime as a film? I don't think so, but that is a good question. Yeah. Because I do think, I do think like certain serialized mangas, I, I do think there's a different term for that than something that's just like more singular. I don't know. Let us know, listeners. Yes. Like here in America, we say graphic novel if there's not a long-running series. And we're pretentious as fuck. Right. Before we get into the movie reviews, I was kind of thinking about the way that our movie opinions change over the years. Um, Okay. Sometimes drastically, sometimes uh, laterally, but... I wanted to try and think of two examples. Each of us come up with an example for a time when an opinion changed from a negative to a positive and a time when it changed from a positive to a negative on a film or a filmmaker or something movie related. Yeah. All right. Do you want to start with one and I'll let you pick whichever one you want to go with first and I'll, I'll match yours. Sure. Uh, yeah, the the first one I'll start with is from a negative to a positive. The first time I... I, I might have talked about this on the podcast before, uh, but the first time I saw the movie Seven, um, mm-hmm. I had a pretty visceral reaction against it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for a long time, would not let myself... would not let that movie in uh because the the ending just upset me so much um i i always was kind of like you know understood that it, it it's well directed and the performances are great and everything as a piece it all comes together but it was just too nihilistic for me at the time when i first saw it mm-hmm. and and now i'm like no it's it's pretty brilliant and will probably always stand out amongst ventures best work okay yeah that's a good one i remember actually watching that with you the first i thought it's probably the first time i saw it too um when we rented it and i you know i liked it i was like oh yeah that's fucked up that's a good crime movie and you're like no it's too fucked up it's yeah. too fucked up it and was I, it, I, at, at the time it was absolutely too fucked up for me to handle i you know, I, but I, I maybe wasn't mature enough for it when we first saw it. I don't know. You know, uh, we saw it in high school, 
right? Or, or right out yeah, of high we, school or something like that. Yeah. Your, your response to it was so visceral and so emotionally reactive that I was like, oh, this is like tapping into some, this is a you <laughs> thing. There's like, you know, there's like, there's, this is your stuff that you're working out in this movie right now. Like, I just thought it was like, you know, a cool, dark, stylish thriller. Like I didn't, you know, I wasn't taking it home with me. No, yeah, that one, that one absolutely stuck to my ribs. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was hard for me to process because uh, just the ending was just too bleak for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, now that I'm well into my thirties, looking closer to forty, I'm like, yeah, life is bleak. Fuck it. Uh, I love it. Yeah, no, I I think it's a I think it's a really good movie. Now I just um, I still try to pay attention to my emotional intuition while watching movies. You know, if something upsets me, I'm. But now the the difference is I try to be a little bit more aware of it and and what you know try to maybe figure out why it upsets me the way it does or or whatever or you know it. it is that the director's intent? I think had David Fincher's wa- watched me my reaction to it, he probably would have loved it. He was like, "Yes, exactly. Uh, that's how you should feel." You know what I mean? Like, right? I mean, if anything, it just speaks to how well the movie works. Um, yeah, yeah. So that is an example of a negative opinion that has changed to positive over time for me. Uh, what what movie did you, film or filmmaker uh, did you have a negative opinion on that has changed to more positive over time? Um, so this kind of would have been around the same time period, maybe a little bit before it. Uh, but I would say one of the most one of the strongest changes of opinion I've had, or one of the sharpest contrasts has been my feelings towards uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, specifically P.T. Anderson. So when I was in high school, I think the first movie I saw by him was Punch Drunk Love. And I rented it, you know, not, it wasn't like a totally like a, I thought it was going to be The Wedding Singer or something like that. Like I knew that it was an indie film and that it was supposed to be kind of more serious or whatever. But there was... The intention of style in that film and the there's sort of a quirky quality to that movie that I did not respond to at the time that I thought was a little obnoxious. Um, And then the second film I saw by him was I went back and watched Magnolia, probably mostly because of Magnolia jokes from Jane's Hot Bob Strike Back. Um <laughs> But having not really known that those were the same director, I I just watched Magnolia, and that's a movie I've turned around on quite a bit. I still think the ending is a, a little fumbled. I'm not in love with the denouement of, of that film, but I much prefer it now than when I watched it in 11th grade or whatever the fuck. So then when I found out that those are both by the same guy, I was just like, ugh. You know, anytime anyone would talk about, like, how brilliant he was. When I got into college, around the same time, I watched Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood, 
which are, in my opinion, two of his best films. And yeah, I I need to revisit Boogie Nights because I I only sort of half watched it in high school, mm-hmm. and I that is one that I did not get like a positive impression of at the time. But I don't think I gave it the attention it deserved. Right. Um. But uh. Yeah. There. There will be blood. Is a masterpiece. Right. Obviously. Yes. And I think I probably saw Boogie Nights even before that because I I had rented it. And um, I was a little cautious because I was like, P.T. Anderson, okay. But I was like, you know, it's a movie. Everyone should see whatever. So I watched it. And when I was over, I was like, not only is this good, this might be in like the top 10 films of the 90s. Like, and that's saying a lot because it's a very competitive decade. Um, sure. Yeah, and then I saw there will be blood, which is you know stylistically very different, but also um, equally brilliant and well made and a masterpiece. Yes. So then, with those kind of in mind, I went back and watched Punch Drunk Love and watched Magnolia again, along with all of his other work uh, that was available at the time. And now he's one of my favorite filmmakers and appointment viewing whenever he releases something. I, you know, sometimes I think we need that though, like to Mm -hmm. discover the things that we truly love is, is that, that thing of like, I don't understand the hype behind this. Everybody tells me it's great, but I watch it and I don't get it. And, And I think sometimes when the formula is right, there's something about that that makes you want to get it and makes you want to kind of do the work to understand it. You know what I mean? Like, and I think maybe you would see things that you would have never come to on your own. Right. Well, you know, hype is, is sort of a double-edged sword that way because in one hand, in one hand it can turn somebody off because you're like, okay, it it makes you very adversarial to watching the movie because you're like, okay, you know, impress me movie. Um, And then if it doesn't, whatever this thing in your head, you've built it up to be, if it isn't that, then you're like, fuck this bullshit. Um, But then on the other hand, I don't, I don't altogether dismiss hype. There's certain types of, you know, when you get older and you are a little bit more film savvy and a little bit more industry savvy, you can distinguish types of hype, you know, organic versus astroturfed. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, there's certain films and certain directors and certain time periods of movies and stuff that you just, it, when it gets hammered over and over and over and over again, um, even if you have that kind of wall put up, um, eventually that can chip through it. And if there's something well, there, if, if there's something of real quality there and you're coming to it with intellectual curiosity, you're willing to to look for what the deal is. I think it was Matt Besser on a, a he, I think it was on, you know, a comedy podcast or some interview he was doing. It might have even been a book. I, I can't remember when mm-hmm. the source was. Um, uh, so uh, hopefully I'm not getting this too wrong. But they were talking, and this is, you know, more to comedy, but I think it kind of applies to 
any art, right, is that no matter what, you're going to have people who, you know, it's art. Art is subjective, right? So it's not everybody is going to think the same things are funny or that the same things are whatever, right? And so he was like, so you have to become undeniable. You have to become, you know, in the craft, you have to become so good that no one can look at you and say, well, that's not good. Like, you have to be undeniable. And I I think that there are certain, you know, there are certain movies and certain directors and certain, you know, you know I mean, things that even if it's not your flavor are mm-hmm. just undeniable. Like, you can't. It might not be for you. You you might not even be able to ever fully connect with it. But just like, I do think there are some things that are just undeniably good or quality. Right. I agree with you. And and I think one of the things that a film critic does or, you know, even somebody's just coming at, at a movie with the intention to review as opposed to just watch for enjoyment only is this idea of trying to remain as agnostic as possible when approaching anything and everything. And I know there's probably people who listen to this podcast and go, bullshit fucking shit. Like, you don't do that all the time. But I promise you I try. Even if I've seen the trailer a hundred times and absolutely everything about it is turning me off, I try to – there's still at least a shred in me that says – but what if it's good? What if these are just bad trailers? Because that does happen. It does. It does. Uh, yeah. I, especially if it's if your opinion is solely based off of something like a trailer or just a marketing right. campaign. Because marketing can sometimes be so far off that it's insane. Right. And of course, obviously, I have my tastes and I have my preferences. Um, and those are deeper grooves uh, to to get out of, but, um, you know, I make the exception for, or I try to make the exception for everything. The, the more I do this type of thing, but let's move on to the second, uh, set here. So what is, uh, your, uh, positive to negative? This one's a little harder for me just because when I watch anything, I want to like it, right? Unless mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I and sometimes it's it's easier for me, it seems, to turn off that critical voice and and just be like, whatever. Um, but this is a specific franchise that I was I was I was clamoring for it, and then we got it, and uh, yeah. So I'm talking specifically about the Transformers franchise. Once you uh, began. With your preamble, yeah. I knew you were going to say this, but... Well, I, I think it's it's exactly what we're talking about, right? And the first movie, uh, it's probably still okay. Um, of them all, I was always like, well, that, you know, that at least the first one's okay. I don't even know how good it is. Like, it, it still has some really dumb, broad jokes and... And, you know, the, the just the character design is so off. But I just wanted a Transformers movie so bad that I was like, it, it didn't matter, right? Like, it had Optimus Prime, had Bumblebee, I was going to be happy. And, it, again, I do think the first one still has at least a little bit of that humanity. 
mm. to it. Um, but I have no urge to ever watch it again. You know, to me, it, it just that whole franchise became just such a slog fest of nonsense, bullshit, sexism, horrible action scenes. Like it just, I, you know, I watched three or four of them in theaters before it got to the point where it's like, I just, I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to prove this. To, I don't need to prove what a Transformers fan I am. Like I can let go of this. I remember specifically uh, the second one I tried to kind of defend and it's pretty indefensible. It's not a good movie. Uh, I, I remember that conversation as well. But here, here's because I saw that, you know, we saw that in theater well before I was reviewing anything or anything. I just sure. went to it, you know, and I at the time I liked the first one enough. Um, yeah, exactly. it wasn't like my identity or anything, but I, but I was like, okay, you know, whatever, it's fine. Um, but I had begun working at the video store the year before Transformers two came out. Mm -hmm. And one of my coworkers always wanted to watch Transformers. He oh, had God. like four okay. movies that he would play on repeat and he would repeat all the lines back to the TV and it was very annoying. Um, Sean, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I was, uh, I was like, <laughs> are you going to just like call him out on this? No, there's a few of my old coworkers who do listen to this. Um, no, he, I generally, we had pretty good, uh, matches on what we wanted to watch. Um, but there was one specific coworker who had, his his four and they were always very annoying movies um so i had seen the original transformers and i think if that's a movie you see once in your life or even once a year let's say if you're yeah. very into that kind of filmmaking then it's not the worst but when you I watch it four times a week oh god yeah um, i i feel like I by the time watch transformers 2 came out I already hated the first one. <laughs> I already fair. knew like any, any of the pretext of like, you know, fandom or sci-fi or any of that was gone. All I knew was it's the loudest fucking movie of just people screaming for th almost three hours. Yeah. Uh, I, see, I, and then I the second like one I was like that times three or four. And so yeah, I was I was pre mad before I before I saw uh, yeah yeah Transformers I mean, you too. Yes, you definitely had a, a bias going into it, and I had the other kind of bias where it's just like you know right. pure nostalgia and like you know I loved some of these characters so much, and and the cartoon movie is you know I've talked about that a lot on the podcast. I still mm. think it holds up uh, as you know a solid. Um, American cartoon movie that's not Disney. Um, but yeah, so like I, I wanted to like it. I was just, I was on the Transformers side and I could probably watch, rewatch the first one, but I, I just don't really have any urge to like the, none of them. Yeah. It, it wasn't good enough. And the, uh, and it just got progressively worse. Like, Right. It just gets so grating to the point where I stopped seeing him in theaters uh, until Bumblebee came out, which we watched and reviewed. And, and 
actually liked. I think it made up for a lot of the sins of of the franchise past. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's it's still a little too attached to those movies. It was, and it was complete. also a little too little too late. Like um, yeah. by that point, it it felt like a a footnote to the series. But but no, I I agree. Like. I even went and saw Transformers 3, however many years later, with the hopes of maybe they get better. And it didn't. And that was the last one I saw in theater until we saw Bumblebee. And yeah, yeah, uh, Bumblebee, I thought it was so far of everything uh, live action Transformers related, um, not only watchable, but good. Yeah, yeah. It is far away, far and away the best of them. I, yeah, it, it was a, it is good. It's a fun movie. That one I I would rewatch. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the last one I saw was whatever one with the Dinobots, and it was just like it was so obviously like trying to cater more to a Chinese market than than make a movie. It was just it's a mess. It's a visual mess. It's an audio mess. Yeah, they're they're not fun for me anymore. I would concur. Okay. My positive to negative, I really just kind of chalk up to getting older, yeah, uh, and changing of sensibility a little bit. Um, That's how and there's still a lot of people who like this movie. I would tell them uh, try the Transformers Challenge on it. Watch it four times a week and see how you feel about it in a year. I mean, that's a hard. That's a hard. There's few movies who that hold any, up to that kind of scrutiny, but yeah, like I just feel like movies are not meant to be seen every day. You know what does work when you're fucking nine years old, Aladdin. Uh, oh yeah, when I remember being sick at my grandma's house in Georgia, and I literally watched it every day because there was nothing else to do, and I still think the cartoon original is great. Anyway. My pick is Boondock Saints. That that's on my list too. I actually have this kind of chalked up as a category of of sort of dumb shoot 'em ups like uh, yeah. Boondock Saints and Smoke and Aces and just like that genre of sort of obnoxious style over movie. substance um, testosterone bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So. I saw this movie as a teenager. It's made for teenagers by a man who had the brain of a teenager. And, you know, I, I'll still say it's there's some good, decent performances in it. There's some decent set pieces, but it's so fucking stupid. Like the more I think I I watched I watched it again. Like we 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 saw it the first time probably in high school, like 10th grade or something. And I just thought it was the coolest fucking thing. Then four or five years down the road, I watched it again. And it's like, eh, with a friend thinking it was one thing and then realizing it wasn't, <laughs> you know, like, because you're watching it through new eyes because you're watching with somebody who's never seen it. Oh, I don't really like how this makes me feel that I was the one who said we should watch this. Um, I mean, I I think there's a little bit of uh, neuroses and anxiety leaking into that because I here's for sure I for sure I just you. remembered like I didn't think of it as being as problematic as it is, and you know this is I, again getting older and everything. Um, yeah. But yeah, now n- now when I watch it, it's it's just 
So when did that movie come out? 2001, 2000? 1999. I, it, but it also didn't well, really it, like have a full theatrical run because it was like it, a cult film, blah, blah, blah. Lived in Idaho, we didn't see it till you know, probably, you know, a couple of years later when we were in high school. Yeah. So I, by I then it had had a, re- it built up a sort of a cult reputation. And there, there was a certain genre, there's like a certain genre of early 2000s sort of shoot 'em ups. And they do get, I think, Boondock Saints is sort of the originator. And I think they get kind of progressively dumber and dumber. Well, Boondock Saints is also very post Tarantino. Yes. Which was a genre that existed pretty much right after Pulp Fiction came out. Um, all the way up through. We still see them every now and then, but uh, for for a while there, especially the late 90s, there were, this was the action movie du jour. Um, yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, you know, motor mouth, uh, cool guy gangster films. And... But yeah, like the whole idea that they're like anointed by God to be vigilantes and then they just like kill people because I guess they're bad. All stuff I very much do not endorse as on any level or really think is like dealt with in a particularly intelligent or moral or responsible way on because they're not even really treated like anti-heroes or it's just kind of like yeah, we're Everyone's cool with this, right? Um, yeah, I I think maybe you are overthinking it a little bit, but I understand how you can go from, like, you know, in high school thinking this is cool as shit to being like, this might not be as cool as I used to think. No, I think actually, is, as far as how reprehensible it is, um, it's saving grace is that it's cringe. <laughs> because if it I mean, was actually effective and if it was actually effective and you know had the message that it had then it would really be a problem then we'd end up in like a you know sort of like a a a, a fight club like proud boys situation where like people saw the movie and didn't realize it was a satire kind of thing but instead no it's just the whole thing feels like angsty eighth grader nonsense yeah, yeah. But Willem Dafoe's great. Yeah, I mean, I I do still think that if you view it... I, again, it has been a while since I've seen it. Um, I imagine there's still probably, like, some fun to be had with it. But I do think that movie probably lacks a, a, a self-awareness that I would want nowadays. Right, I agree. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the review segment now. Uh, We'll start with Pearl, um, which just came out in theaters. This is uh, directed by Ty West. Um, Like I said, it is a sort of uh, semi-prequel to the film X, which we reviewed sometime in the spring. And is the second in a planned trilogy, I think... The third, uh, Maxine, I believe it's called, is going to come out either at the end of the year or early next year. He pretty much made these simultaneously, as far as I know. But, uh, yeah, do you want to just describe this one? Sure, yeah. So Pearl is about a, a, a young woman who is 
living in a farm. Um, her name is Pearl, played by Mia Goth. And uh, it is during the year 1918. Uh, so the war, World War One, is raging in Europe, and the Spanish flu uh, epidemic is ravaging the world. At least in this movie, is portrayed in much in a similar way as as how COVID is affected our modern day and age. You know, people have to be aware that this is a transmissible disease and and take precautions to try and prevent from spreading it. And Pearl's father was afflicted and has left him as an invalid in, you know, wheelchair bound, um, not able to really move or speak or, or not really able to do sort of anything. Mm. Um, so it is between Pearl and Pearl's mother to take care of the farm and to, you know, make sure that all the chores are done and make sure everything is taken care of. Uh, but Pearl is a bit of a dreamer. Um, she goes, when she goes to town for medicine, she likes to sneak into the movies and see the dancing girls. Uh, and that's what she wants to do with her life. She wants to become a dancer and, you know, move out of the, the small farm life and into the big city and go on adventures in Europe. And, and, you know, she just, she's a dreamer. She wants more of her life than what she is given as her dreams start to fall apart. Uh, her reaction to them is less than savory. Okay. Yeah. I feel like that's enough of a tease description. So, you know, I tried to stay away from most marketing materials. Uh, I actually think I didn't see a trailer until fairly recently. Um, yeah, I didn't really, I, same here, I didn't really know, uh, the only thing I really knew about it was its connection to X. Right, and it's, it's, this is a, it's an interesting film in that regard, because X and Pearl, while having, sharing a character in both films, um, and the setting, I guess, sort of, um, yeah. I I would describe this as I know technically it's a prequel in that the events take place earlier in time, but I would describe this as more of a spin-off. Uh because it's it's not necessarily directly. Mm-hmm. I, I mean it sort of is, but it's it's not in the way that you think a prequel is going to set up. It it doesn't set up X, right? It just I mean, it could. Like, if you saw this film and then watch X second, which would be yeah. the chronological way of doing it, then you it would tell larger story about it this, tells a this character. Story to, yeah. um, but, I mean, stylistically, these movies are coming from completely different places. That's what I mean when I say, to me, this feels like more of a spinoff, is... This movie is just so interested in doing its own thing and telling its own story. Mm-hmm. And in a way that we don't normally get from what we think of as like, you know, franchise movies. Like, you could easily watch this movie and not have seen uh, X or and have no connection to X. And I think you still would have gotten... Absolutely the exact, you know, everything out of it that you were supposed to get out of it. 
Correct. Yes. Um, the fact that they're connected is almost incidental. It's, yeah, it's it's more tangential. It's more like, oh, well, that's kind of fun. And there, there's there's something kind of happening here, which I really enjoyed watching from Ty West. Um, Ty West's approach to cinema is, you know, he's he's very much a stylist, and he's very into aesthetics. And we've seen that through his filmography, um, you know, particularly X was really kind of going for like a 70s grindhouse kind of exploitation slasher in the vein of like a Toby Hooper style uh, Texas Chainsaw kind of homage um, yeah. with a little bit of sort of a satire in there as well. And a little bit about like the 70s adult film industry and, you know, going back to Boogie Nights. Um, so there's some of that kind of playing in, but for the most part, that movie and all of his movies up to this point, um, that I, that I've seen, there's like a Western he did that I didn't see with John Travolta. Um, but everything else that I've seen by him is, is rooted in genre first and style second. You know, he's really concerned about, like, getting the set pieces correct, getting, you know, the mood and the atmosphere, and and evoking the correct uh, tone for horror setups and scenes, and, and being very traditionally horror in that way. This movie, I feel like it's kind of the other way around, where, yes, it is a horror film... Technically, like it, it is. Yeah, um, yeah, I would say it very much is, uh, but it's not. It's not a. But I would not say that's the primary concern of the movie. I would not. Uh, to me, I see there's kind of a. Uh, to me, there's much more of a playfulness with genre here, than there is in anything I've seen from him before. Rather than just going for straight one, horror, yeah, straight horror, one kind of specific thing like you know, catering to that specific crowd, there's there's more of kind of an explosive love of cinema as a whole here. This is probably his most cine-literate film yet as far as his, the, what he's evoking, his, his different touchstones, so, and letting his hair down as far as, like, do I get, you know, these horror kills and payoffs down? Like, the, I think he's much more interested in Pearl, and he's much more interested in the character study and letting that inform the horror as opposed to building her story yeah. around these horror set pieces. And, so, yeah, I agree with that completely. And for my money, I liked this movie way more than I enjoyed X. And I liked X okay. I you know, we mm. uh, you can go back and listen to our review on it. Um it you know, I thought it was a solid slasher. Um Yeah. Uh it, it, but it was to me it was just kind of that that was just sort of it. Maybe a little, you know, a few other things. This movie is way more confident mm -hmm. and way more focused in what the story actually is and way more disturbing. 
I think there, sure there's not like the same kill count as X, but I think this is a much scarier movie in, in terms of what it's actually about and what it's actually saying. Like I, at the end of this, I was, I was kind of fucked up by it. I was like, that is <laughs> fucked. Uh, but in, a, in all the right ways. Well, and, in a very different way than in X, because in yes, X, it, it's telegraphed from, you know, from the very beginning, this is going to be one of those kind of movies. It's going to be a horror film with a killer in the dark. And that's... Yeah, and this opens up like a fucking musical. It, it, it is... If you've seen X, you know some turn is coming, mm -hmm. but you don't know what. And you don't know what will set it off. And you don't necessarily know if it will even happen in this movie. Uh, it's also a much slower burn. You know, there's some foreboding moments. And there's definitely hints dropped throughout the, the script. Um, but you never... Even though I saw X, I never sort of expected it to fully go where it goes. And I was delighted by how horrified I was by it. <laughs> right. But it's a different type of terror because in X, it's, it's mostly dealing with uh, traditional horror set pieces in the sense that you have yeah. these kind of music stings and these, you're building these to kill. edits and yeah. And we talked about how like sometimes that, that uh, familiar pattern can actually become numbing after a while if you yeah. don't change it up enough or if you don't come at something at a different angle, then then it just feels like genre exercise. And at its worst, sometimes that's what X is. And I, I liked X. I think it's a good genre exercise. This feels much more a genre thesis. you know. And the type of horror that he's attempting here is much more I mean, about morbidity and much more about uh i mean I, I suppose in x there was a little bit of that with like the uncomfortability of elderly sexuality and stuff like that so there was yeah that's, there that's was what i mean there was some elements there, there was some that stuff carry more over. absolutely yeah you could see and you know some of that stuff that felt maybe exploited for the state of exploitation feels much more informed now having seen Pearl. So in a way I'd, I'd actually be interested in watching X again with that in mind. Yes. Well, and no, I mean, I, I think this is the correct order to release them in because this is just to me such a stronger story. Like normally I am not, I'm actually kind of anti prequel. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, in my opinion, the story, what happens before the story isn't story. Right. So unless you have a story to tell, it's it's not worth it. This is the the exception against the rule, right? Like, to me, there's so much more here than the original that, that that I'm like, yeah, this is this is what a prequel should be. It should be its own story. It should be its own thing. Uh. You know, it, it might inform a different viewing of the original, but it shouldn't rely solely on, oh, you should have seen this movie to get these Easter eggs. 
And this right, doesn't right. do that at all. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really even like calling this a prequel because of that. Um, and yeah. I don't even really love calling it a spinoff either because that that's sort of both of those sort of imply this sort of it diminishes it. Yeah, it, this it sort of like cynical, it, like bean counting sort of tendency towards um, cinema's product. Whereas what I, I really think is happening here is more of this like artistic project that happens to include three films. Like it feels like it feels like something like. Uh, like an anthology or a triptych done over the course of three films in a short period of time. And if he can pull off Maxine, if it's even half as good as Pearl, hats off. Like this guy went from just being an interesting horror guy who had some cool films back in the day before he went and did some TV stuff, as happens to a lot of indie filmmakers, to through sheer force of of exuberance and just getting it done and pushing in all of his chips at once, whatever he has, you know, whatever kind of cachet he has in the industry right now saying, okay, this is my shot. Mom spaghetti. Let's do this. And he, and he's fucking dead. And I would not have said that. From X. No, I like, would have been like, okay, cool, you're back on track. Let's see what you do. But yeah, to come out with this in the same goddamn year. Yeah, I, I am. I went from kind of not giving really a shit. Like you even suggested seeing this, and I was, you know, there, there's other stuff I wanted to see more. Mm-hmm. To now, I'm like, oh fuck, I have to see the third one. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I have to know, right? Uh, yeah. And and the way, like you said, the way it was just sort of dropped on us in the same year of like, yeah, this is almost I, I a think flex. That's, like that's the I, thing. Yeah, it's I like think, with X, it's I I kind of get the the release order, and X is the safer project. Yeah, for sure. And I'll say, but this. it's also like I'm going to release two of the best horror movies in the same year. Like, come right. on, yeah. And this has been a great year for horror, which is a whole separate conversation. But, but yeah, I mean, I'll say I'll say this, uh, particularly to people who are listening who might have been a huge fan of X, and you're like, okay, I guess I'll see this new thing. I don't know if other X fans are going to like this. I don't know what the percentage of crossover is here because it feels like these movies are made for two completely different audiences. It's not only that they're stylistically different, it's like they're two totally different flavors of horror. Yeah, one is uh, Texas Chainsaw, the other is The Shining, you know, like... One is I think a, about the kills and the and the blood and guts and and the other and one is about a, a more psychological element and and but a, it's a slower... I wouldn't even say The Shining because that would sort of imply even that is this movie isn't reaching towards Kubrick so much it's reaching towards like the Wizard of Oz and nineteen yeah, fifties yeah. melodrama and but, I even felt like but it's still. This, the horror elements are still there, but that's what I mean when I say it's a slow burn. Like it, it the payoff is so good that and and the partially the payoff is so good because of how playful it is with genre and style and mm-hmm. and this 
this movie of the era that it's kind of about, I mean, it's it's a fantasia. It's it's sort of this like lurid fever dream of a movie. Right. I would actually say closer to some of the stuff we've we've seen from David Lynch. Yeah. Um, like David yeah, Lynch's interpretation of classic Hollywood through sort of, you know, the this more twisted, darker edge. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a little bit of that going on. There's like I said, there's kind of like a like there's definitely a lot of Wizard of Oz. That's all over the movie. Um, which, you know, Lynch has also dipped his toes into Oz territory, specifically with Wild at Heart. But there's also kind of like a Southern Gothic as white trash satire in the vein of like early John Waters. I'm thinking like <laughs> movies like like Female Trouble and and Polyester and even, I mean, even I don't Hairspray it, it, to a certain extent. It's not as goofy as those movies or, or as cheap or as exp- exploitation-y um, as those movies. But it has this kind of a similar sensibility in the way that it approaches, like I said, sort of uh, satire I mean, it, as Southern Gothic. Well, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it is definitely kind of this like pastiche uh, that maybe, you know, maybe they're both kind of playing in. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's not a one for one, but what I'm saying uh, is there's this, this movie is much more playful in terms of where he's grabbing influence, the mixing and matching he's doing the aesthetic that he's creating. And I think that aesthetic, while I am totally in and here for it, and I had a grin from ear to ear, the entire movie. Yeah. I think could be very off putting for people who think they're going to see X two. And I don't mean X-Men United. I know what you mean. I disagree. I think think that even X has enough X factor, uh, pun intended, and (laughs) stylistic approach that I think, I I think most people who enjoyed that are probably going to be able to give Ty West the benefit of the doubt and wait for this to get where it's going because it, delivers on on the same promise and i think again i think in a much more effective way and before we go too far into just uh sucking ty west dick on this uh which you know he deserves like i i think he's great in it um but you know this is also co-written by mia goth who churns out a career performance in this oh yeah like she is incredible. I, she's good in X. This is like next level fucking shit. This is... She, yeah. I, I mean, the whole supporting cast is great. People are talking Academy is, Award nominations for her out of this grimy horror film that I... I mean, She absolutely deserves it. Like, th- this is a star-making movie. You mm-hmm. know, like this... The whole movie... Rests on her performance. And, yeah, if, and if she didn't work, nothing would work. Exactly. And it's and the movie is so aware of that. There are these moments that linger on her for minutes at a time, for you know, multiple extended shots to just get this incredible performance. Mm-hmm. Uh that you know, I think as much 
credit as Ty West deserves as director, she deserves just as much for making it work, for for being able to dance between both worlds of, you know, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz and fucking Hannibal Lecter. You know, like, <laughs> it's just, it's an incredible performance. Yeah, and I think the performance would almost not work if it was played straight. If there wasn't this veneer over the whole thing of sort of, hyper stylized um almost sort of cartoon reality yeah well I then mean, then the performance would would almost be too on the nose but because because the whole thing is pitched at this weird yeah tone, you're, you're you're seeing the whole movie through her eyes and mm-hmm. that makes it work yeah it it's the world as she sees it this fantasy in her head yeah. Um, that's why it's such an effective this character movie, study. Also, that that's another thing I want to say about this movie uh, uh, is it is so bright and yeah. colorful and, uh, and beautiful, against like everything old school would... kind of style, like Technicolor. You almost expect to see like like the phony backdrops of something like Gone with the Wind or or Wizard of Oz. Um, I don't think they do that. They might have a couple of times, but. Um, but it, no, but, but it feels even like in, that, even if it isn't rear projection. But even in scenes that don't have this, you know, like beautiful farm backdrop, which uh, again is the exact opposite of X because that movie was almost entirely set at night. Or in uh, like uh, uh, sun-baked, dry, yeah, everything, sun- dirty 70s. But, like, the shots during the day, like, I, I remember specifically when she meets the movie projectionist, mm-hmm. there is, the like, the building behind him in the alley. You know, it could just be an alley, but it's, like, periwinkle with these, like, yellow piping mm-hmm. and, and just, like, these bright, brilliant colors uh, in every shot that are just incredibly painted. I, that, and... If nothing else, one of the things that shocked me the most about this movie is how bright and colorful, and again, just that juxtaposition with the fucked upness. Um, I, I definitely can see, you know, uh, some blue velvet in, you know, in, sure. in this movie yeah. for sure. But it's just impeccably done. Yes, and and both of these movies, X and. Pearl, if there is a thematic connection here other than the character stuff um, and the fact that they're horror films, is there's definitely this connection between the characters and film as fantasy and living in fantasy and the expectations of fantasy versus the stark, the disappointment of of reality. I I mean... True. That's absolutely true. And and I think broader strokes, uh, yeah, that more of the thematic connection. I mean, it's not a also- coincidence that, you know, one of her main co-stars is a projectionist at a theater. And No, you know, not at all. But, we- <laughs> but also, there's this huge uh, uh, conversation about sexuality and violence. And, sure. yeah. and uh, 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 you know, I'm 
there's this connection with pornography and uh, uh, the exploitation of, of women that is very interesting. That right, that juxtaposes with purity culture. Absolutely. And, 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 uh, and the other movie that uh, was screaming at me the whole time while watching this is there's a whole lot of Carrie happening yes. here. Yeah. Um, of both just in the structure of the story and the mother-daughter well, dynamic. It, it's some of those, I mean, the, the scenes at the table with the rain and the lightning. I mean, it's it's very intentional. Um, and, and like, the way public humiliation uh, uh, can incite certain things. Like, absolutely. I Right. And there's, there's sort of a, even though they're not heroes of their stories, they are very sympathetic because there's sort of a feminist subtext to to a lot of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and whether or not the, the Spanish flu stuff was a workaround because they were shooting during COVID times or because it was something that he genuinely wanted to explore, uh, it, it is uh, such an interesting juxtaposition to see this, like, you know, this, this, this kind of Norman Rockwell Americana with everybody wearing these face masks and it's... It's oh, absolutely. Uh, it's almost like very. there's that the the threat, this invisible threat that exists even in scenes that are idyllic. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, this is the only movie post COVID that has sort of dealt with COVID in a way that I haven't like sort of rolled my eyes at or what I'm like, Oh, they're actually like exploring something here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I thought that was really well done and it's done in light touches. You know, this isn't a movie about the Spanish flu. No, it's in the backdrop and it's it's there, but it's not uh, pounding you on the face with it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So what do you, do you have any final thoughts about Pearl? Yes. Uh, my only two points of criticism is I thought some of the horror sequences could have been scarier for me personally. Um, but I understand that that's not exactly how they were trying to play it. But there are, you know, there's some bloodletting in the movie, as you might expect. Um, and I, when they happen, I wasn't... Uh, shocked out of my seat by them or anything like that. I was just like, you know, it was just kind of part of what was happening in the story as opposed to, it didn't quite <laughs> have that, like that, uh, uh, that sense of tension that, um, uh, again, I maybe I, would have wanted in other, in other times. I, I could not disagree with you more. It, 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 there's no jump scares really. I'll say that. No, but... And I'm not asking for that exactly, but I, I think like, this movie could have there's maybe something used about like a the way the violence touch. is. No, there's something about the way the violence is portrayed in this movie that I think is way scarier than anything I saw in X. And uh, I thought I I disagree. I thought the the stuff that was supposed to be scary was scary as hell, and so so not typical of a of a horror movie set piece i i liked that about it to me that was a feature not a bug okay um and tandy wright who plays the mother ruth if we are talking about 
you know, the mother-daughter exchanges uh, in comparison to Carrie. It's She's not quite a Margaret White. Like, it's not... Sometimes I feel like her scenes are good. She's good enough. But uh, she's often overpowered off the screen. But that's, again, that's kind of her character because she's cold and shut off and German. So it's, these are things I might not even agree with myself the next time I watch it. Yeah. But I, these I, are just kind of immediate takeaways. Yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of, uh, Pearl is such a strong character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it is very hard to play opposite of that. Um, but for my money, I, I think that the mother dramatically pulls her weight in those scenes, even though she, she's not as complex of a character. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think the performance is still really good. I, I give this movie an A plus. I was absolutely thrilled by it. it. To me, I, I think this is one of the most original horror movies I've seen in a while. Yeah, I give it an A as well. Um, and uh, uh, Emma Jenkins Pirro, who plays her uh, sister-in-law, they both have husbands at war. I love all of the scenes with her. Like, their oh, exchanges. Yeah. They're pitched perfectly. I agree. Yeah. All right. That is... That's Pearl. And... Uh, yeah, I... I'm glad that you sort of forced this one on me. I was interested in it, um, but I'm very glad I went to see it. I I was just delighted by how fucked up it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to see what turns out of Maxine, the third in this this trilogy. Um, yeah, it's and on, who knows what a, we're going to get. It just raised the bar, so that's yeah. a... It's going to be a hard one to follow. Agreed. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about Perfect Blue. This is uh, streaming on Shudder, a Japanese animated film. It came out in 1997. And, you know, we this happens sometimes. Weirdly similar movies. Yeah. This is, this is quite the fucking double feature. Yeah. A lot of repeated themes here, both psychologically driven thrillers. Uh, So this is about a pop star named Mima who decides uh, after a couple years of singing in a girl group ensemble that uh, she wants to try and make it in the pictures, in the movies. So she... Makes a change in her career to star in some trashy television projects like CSI type murder mystery stuff. And while she's in the middle of this highly publicized transition, she believes that she's being stalked. Um, mostly because of a blog written about her um, that's supposed to be from her perspective um, seems to know more than it should. Whoever's writing this blog is following her. And so there's that going on while also sort of her trying to live up to the expectations 
of making it as a real actor when everybody sort of sees her as this pampered pop star who nobody takes her seriously. So she begins to take more and more lurid subjects in these projects she's working on um, and doing more and more risque and exposing scenes to get more screen time and to rocket to stardom faster, which also plays into sort of the breakdown of her psychology of, you know, turning that switch from a teen pop act into somebody who's willing to do very intense scenes of sexual assault. And yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of a procedural thriller and a psychological thriller at the same time. Um, and it's all done sort of in this anime style, but, um, fairly grounded for this, this type of film, even though a lot of it hinges on the surreality of what's real, what's not real, what's in our head, what isn't more and more as the movie goes. Yeah. And I, I was afraid that that was going to be because it's in it's animation, Mm -hmm. they can kind of cheat some things that you can't do in real life Mm -hmm. um and and so there were i more and more as the movie progressed i was kind of afraid it was getting more and more fantastical uh but i i liked how grounded it's it stayed like it, it never went too far for me no i know what you're saying i think there's i think it keeps things grounded enough to have a a a solid narrative through line to follow. Yeah. And within that, they can play around for sure. And I think that there are, there's a certain point in the film when it becomes more and more up to interpretation as far as what Mm -hmm. you believe is happening and what isn't happening. Yeah. Um, The the reality starts to bend, but, but that's what I mean in a way that I was afraid that because it was animated, that could become less clear. And uh, like you said, it's open to certain things are certainly open to interpretation, but I never felt lost. If that makes sense. No, I think towards the third act, they maybe play overplay that hand a little bit. Like it shifts from, Oh, it's this to, Oh, it's not this. Oh, to, Oh, it's this again. Like I was reminded a lot of, of the live action film um, audition in that way where there's mm-hmm. there there's a moment in the film where you're like wait so is this happening or not <laughs> and uh, they, they leave that open um, and I think in this film they do as well but but overall I think what's more important than the mechanics of the plot is what it's driving home thematically, which, you know, we can talk all day about the similarities between this and Pearl because it is striking that I watch these in the same week. But also, you could also talk about how this is similar to um, Black Swan. I wasn't sure if the Aronofsky conversation would come up. Um, you know, I think it has to. Um, there's a, There's been a lot written about whether or not he was lifting from this movie. I don't think... 
it's so similar that it ruins Black Swan or that it, you know, that it is a copycat. I've seen movies that are much more egregious as far as that goes. I think this movie is of a genre that is doing this type of stuff. I think there's a lot of this movie that feels kind of similar to Mulholland Drive. I mean, Mulholland Drive is a little bigger in scope, but there's similarities between the characters and especially the Hollywood stuff and... I also think, like, there's enough going on in Black Swan, um, and I've I've never seen Requiem for a Dream. I I heard that there are specific shots he kind of, we'll say, replicates. Sure, um, but what director doesn't do that? Yeah, exactly, or or pays homage to, or whatever. Um, But I, I think Black Swan is definitely unique enough as its own story that I wouldn't watch Black Swan and this in a vacuum and be like, Oh, that totally ripped it off. Like, yeah, the similar themes in the same way that Pearl has similar connections. And you know what I mean? I, it's, I think more of a, uh, directors taking a stab at a larger thematic question of, you know, uh, entertainment versus reality and fantasy versus reality. And, and the way, into entertainment industries uh specifically exploit women and mm-hmm. and how self-identity uh, you know a uh, uh, weakened self-identity and how that can be preyed upon and you know what i mean like mm-hmm. there's enough going on that remember that movie can... the other not black swan we watched uh, vox lux yeah i i actually thought of that one more than black swan even though i think black swan is a much better movie mm-hmm. um because specifically the context of like a pop star and the a sort specific of loss like, of innocence of, yeah yeah that to me perfect blue is a lot more interested in um in in kind of the same conversation about pop superstardom Um, And there is something, you know, specifically about the Japanese culture with that and how, you know, there is a difference between the way they treat their pop idols and the way we treat our pop idols. And, And I think I think both the cultural differences and similarities are very interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is basically the story of every Disney pop star who, who goes dark. Yeah. Yeah. And it, which happens all too often. It's also just interesting in the way that specifically in the context of this movie, it is such an either or thing. It Mm. is, you cannot be a pop star and try to be an actor. Those do not work together. Whereas, you know, I I mean, to, depending on the the age of the star and how they became a pop star in America, I feel like some people are able to sort of cross-blend genre a little better. Uh, certainly not in the case of, like you said, I, I think the sort of Disney star to dramatic actor is a much more similar path than just pop star to actor. Right, and, you know, you're talking about the when we talk about the differences between the Japanese industries or Asian industries in general, like multimedia and American, it's people are a lot more 
you know, we, we kind of uh, create stars out of personalities. So yeah. it's not just the songs and the videos and everything. It is you're selling Britney Spears. You're selling Christina Aguilera. You're selling Miley Cyrus. You know, whatever that might be. And then you have these album cycles in mind and all of that stuff. Whereas in Japan, a lot of the time, especially with these ensembles, the the members are often literally interchangeable. They'll swap them out every now and then when they start to get too old or, you it's, know. Again, I think that the Disney analogy is good because it's, it's you know, it's like uh, the... The Disney Channel Club, the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah, uh, it's it's like Menudo, you know. It's like exactly the brand doesn't depend on any singular person. And yeah, in, in that way, I think. Uh, what's the what's the really famous South Korean group? The BTS. Yes, in that way, they're kind of unique in that they have specific stars. Like, mm-hmm. I know Jimin is, like, their JT or whatever. And so when they said they're breaking up, that actually meant something. As opposed to, we'll just find five other guys and call them BTS. Sure, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, And that's literally all I know about BTS. So, correct me if I'm wrong, internet. But, yeah, I, I think all of that stuff, you know, the portrayals of the industry, all that in subtext is super interesting. How do you how do you think this worked, both as a thriller and as a like procedural? Uh, a lot better than I actually was kind of expecting it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's this interesting sort of B plot story about this like stalker character that. I, to me helped sort of fit that criteria a little bit more because mm-hmm. I kind of knew what the basic gist of this movie was. Um, and so I, I liked that there was these sort of external factors that supported her fantasy mm-hmm. in a way that, that made you really question what was going on. And there are some moments that I, you know, I thought were genuinely pretty creepy and and weird in a way that I maybe not wasn't expecting. I I think uh, I think to me it delivers on that. And, you know, there's enough sort of kills and and blood and and to me, it, I mean, it's very giallo. Uh, it is there. I, I, I thought of that as well, like especially the way that it deals with the stalking sequences or the, um, you know, the murder mystery aspect of it, even though this is clearly a Japanese, you know, product and animated no, no less about Japanese society, there is a ton of influence from Italian thrillers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, it for me, it was, it was creepier than I was expecting it to be. It was a little, I'm, you know, I wasn't like scared by it, but I, to yeah. me, it, it, it checked those notches. You know, my brain was like, oh yeah, this is creepy. This is scary. Yeah. So I, I think as far as that goes, it absolutely delivered. Mm-hmm. 
and in some ways, like the the you know, because this was ninety seven, so this is almost pre internet. Like there there is an internet in this film, but it's very like rudimentary. But yeah, the conversations there's, there's it's having a- about like the you know that veneer of of separation between entertainer and fan the way we expect sort of this availability and intimacy from celebrities and the way the internet has changed the that access to celebrities uh in, in this kind of predicted stuff in a lot of ways like it, it kind of right. was um very prescient yeah that, that, that idea of like parasocial relationships yeah it's uh it's very prescient like it's talking about stuff that wouldn't even we wouldn't really experience in a meaningful way until like at least a good 10 plus years after this. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, perfect blue. I get the hype. Yeah. Uh and you know, I, we kind of talk a little bit more about anime in our episode where we recently reviewed Nausicaa. Uh but I also do think that it is an interesting an interesting note in the history of Japanese animation as well, too, because it is it is so grounded and it is so an adult m- movie, yeah, yeah, and it is th- thrilling in a way that that not even like horror anime uh, approaches in this way, you know, like it 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 is. Yeah, there's actually a definitely- funny sequence in here where. Um, uh, where she's visiting a bookstore or something like that. And she sees like these very exaggerated, like chibi kind of style books and posters mm-hmm. and stuff, which is like, like in my head, I'm like, Oh, it's like, this is an anime portraying the real world, portraying anime. Like yeah. it was this yeah. wild meta moment where, well, yeah, I mean, but, it, but, I don't think that's any less intentional than the, you know, than the musical movie elements of Pearl. Like, right. it's it's definitely commenting on these things. Like, you know, it, the movie opens with, uh, like, a Power Rangers, re- you know, recreation stage show. Right. Like, well, that's it, the thing. It, is, it, it, takes place, it takes place in the real world, not in a hyper-stylized, fantastic yeah. world. It, it just so happens to be animated, but that's just because that's the way they decided to tell this story. But okay, yeah, that is Perfect Blue. But if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics that we've talked about on this podcast or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Find us on social media at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever your favorite podcatcher app is, uh, particularly Spotify and iTunes and Google Podcasts. And if you want to follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram, you can do so at VC Cassidy. Uh, you can read the reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. 
Uh, also, I do a show at Mockingbird Improv. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Improv versus Standup. Uh, the show runs every Saturday night, and you can follow the Instagram for updates. Uh, and uh, also follow Mockingbird Theater uh, if you're in San Diego area and interested in improv. Okay, and that is the episode. I'm what more civilized people call bohemian. Bye.